The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Rightly related to God the Holy Spirit, whenever we sin, we quench and grieve the Spirit, which means that His sanctifying ministry is squelched, it is stifled, it is no longer operational. That does not mean that He is not involved in our lives in other ways. We are continually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the filling ministry is related to the learning application of doctrine, related to using that in our spiritual lives to produce spiritual growth, the production of the Holy Spirit. And so when we sin, that is shut down. It is recovered through confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer if necessary to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, ready to focus, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that we have clear understanding of who you are and what your purposes and policies are for mankind. We thank you for the fact that it tells us who we are, what our problems are, and the ultimate problem of sin, and the complete provision of a solution through Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we thank you that your word is absolute truth and that it is the means, along with the filling of the Spirit, by which we are brought to maturity in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study today, that we might be challenged by them, and that our appreciation for this tremendous spiritual life that you have given us might increase, that our appreciation might uh, spur us on to greater growth as we advance to maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. John writes, and this is the message we have heard from him, and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, none at all. That's a corrected translation. Now, one of the major themes, major emphasis of 1 John is how the believer can maintain fellowship with God. It's interesting that in John, I mean, in Judges in the first hour, we're basically studying uh, the impact of paganism on a culture. In 1 John when John writes this epistle to his recipients, they're struggling with the fact that pagan concepts of thought have infiltrated the local church. These are, as we've studied, these are certain Platonic doctrines, pre-Gnostic doctrines, Docetic doctrines, doctrines that attack the person and work of Jesus Christ, uh, doctrines that reject his uh, true humanity, doctrines that assert that it was just sort of an apparition 
that appeared, that he really did not become a man. Doctrines that ultimately deny human sinfulness on the one extreme or on the other extreme, they proclaim doctrines that would promote uh, antinomianism, that we can just sin with impunity because, after all, the material life is a life of sin, but the spiritual life is on another plane. And so, in our spiritual life, we're not sinning, we can't sin, but on the physical plane, we do. And there are uh, variations of those same ideas still assaulting the church today. It's paganism. And these are, and by paganism, I mean thinking that is contradictory to the Word of God, that is apart from the Word of God. Pagan is not a desultory term. It's not an insult. It's a technical term for non-biblical thinking, what we also call human viewpoint or the Bible calls worldliness or cosmic thinking. So on the one hand, we're learning in the first hour how paganism destroys a culture from the inside. That That's the root problem is a rejection of God, a rejection of doctrine, and that all of the other manifestations of problems, the economic problems, the military problems, the all the various cultural problems, same thing we face today, various societal problems, political problems, moral problems, whatever we focus on, those are really symptoms of the core problem, which is a rejection of God. And in the church, a rejection and no understanding of the concept of fellowship with God and walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the two messages, the two books really fit together and their themes are going to overlap as we have seen. So this is a consistent message throughout the scriptures. Now when John starts off here, he's starting to talk about fellowship, that it's in, fellowship is not social interaction. It's not just getting together and having a good time. It's not even living a moral life. There's more to fellowship with God than living a good life. There's all kinds of people who live moral lives and aren't in fellowship with God. That fellowship also has a doctrinal facet to it. You must have a proper understanding of the person and work of Christ, at least at a basic level, because that's what is the, that's the assault from this group of defectors, reversionist believers who he describes as those who went out from us but were not part of us. They have rejected the true humanity of Jesus Christ. They have rejected concepts of the atonement, concepts of salvation. So it's basic understanding like that that is necessary so that fellowship is then defined as not only right belief but also right behavior and that is going to be further developed starting in verse 5. And the starting point is God. We always start with God. Don't start with experience. Don't start with what's going on in the human realm. No matter what's going on, no matter what you're talking about, any subject in life, you always start with God's revelation. When you start with in witnessing, you start with God. You don't start with human experience because as soon as you start with anything within the created realm, that becomes the focus of common ground. And there is no common ground between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. So we always start with God, presupposing God exists and God is spoken. You don't try to jump out into some sort of supposed neutrality to try to prove the Word of God. You just start with what God has said. And this is the message. So John is focusing on this, this message that is uh, <clears throat> first mentioned in verse 1, the message of life. It's proclaimed in verse 2. Uh, he reiterates the fact that this is what we witnessed as apostles in verse 3, what we proclaim to you. And now he's going to expand on this message and help us to understand how to avoid or how to, and how to recover from paganism and how to avoid being influenced by paganism by maintaining fellowship with God. Verse 5 starts off, the main verb is, this is the message we have heard from you. It is a per we, have, we have heard from him. It is a perfect active indicative of akuo, which means to hear, and the perfect indicates the continuous abiding results. It emphasizes an event that happened in the past and the results that continue into the present. So it's emphasizing the present reality of a past action, the message we've heard. He taught it in the past and it continues to be in effect today. From him, it comes from the ultimate source of Jesus Christ. 
and we announce to you, and that is a present active indicative of on angelo, which means we are continuing to announce to you. It is a uh, continuous present indicating that we are continually announcing this, we're continually teaching this, that God is light, and that's the starting point, is who and what God is in terms of his person that God is light. So last time we started with the doctrine of light. We're going to go back and review the first two or three points and then continue to expand it. If we don't understand the metaphor of God as light and not having any darkness in him, that is the subject of verse 5, then we're going to misconstrue and misunderstand the application of that metaphor in verses 6 and 7. So the first point is light translates the Hebrew or and the Greek phos, both meaning light, light, no light. Now, let there be light. And what does John say? And light appear, but men love the darkness rather than the light. But... We're going to enjoy the light as it illuminates the screen and we can learn some doctrine. Okay, well, we have seen in, uh, the message we've heard from him. Now, so you God is light. So light translates Hebrew or the Greek phos, both meaning light, brilliance, brightness, illumination. They refer to sunlight, daylight, moonlight, any kind of light, just general words for light. But they are used metaphorically for a number of things. Now, metaphor is an implied analogy. If it's a stated analogy, it's a simile. God is like light. God is as light. But this is just a metaphor. God is light. It is not saying that God exists with all the properties, wave particles, wave, wave theory, particle theory, whichever you buy into or whichever it is in physics. It is talking about certain other concepts when it talks about light. To understand that, we have to go back into the Old Testament to understand how light and darkness were used. And they are used for a number of things. Life, justice, righteousness, judgment, the glory of God, truth, divine revelation. are just some of the things that light is used to illustrate and to communicate. Light is used as a metaphor for the kingdom of God and the plan of God in contrast to darkness which is used as a metaphor for the kingdom of Satan, for carnality, sin, and evil. So light is used as a metaphor for, for the kingdom of God versus darkness for the kingdom of Satan. So therefore, light then reflects God in who he is in terms of his character, his integrity, his righteousness, his justice, and darkness is going to be uh, represent carnality, sinfulness, Satan, and the... Satan's kingdom. A couple of verses, Proverbs 2.13. From those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. We have uh, antithetical parallelism there. The darkness is contrasted to righteousness or uprightness. Proverbs 4.19. The way of the wicked is like darkness. There we have a simile, by the way. It's like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And notice there we slip from darkness being carnality to the fact that it is related to ignorance of God's standards. It becomes they do not know their ignorance. So ignorance of doctrine is related to uh, darkness, and that is related to the uh, evil, wicked, unrighteous lifestyle of the unbeliever. Acts 26.18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. The parallelism there, the dominion of Satan is parallel to darkness. God, the kingdom of God or the authority of God is parallel to light. In order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by me in faith. So there we have the contrast between uh, the domain of light and the domain of darkness. And this is reiterated in Colossians 1.13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, this is important for understanding positional truth, that we are in the kingdom of light. That is our position. 
but we have to draw a distinction between a position and experience, and this is where some people fail. And there are many who teach that because we are in the, now in the kingdom of light, that, for example, let's skip ahead a little bit, we can't, to appreciate why I'm doing, why I'm spending time in verse 5 on God is light, we have to understand where we're going in verse 6. Verse 6 reads, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, so fellowship there is going to be related to walking in the light. There are many who teach that because we have been transferred into the kingdom of light, that being in light and walking in the light are synonymous. That means that fellowship is synonymous with salvation. So it's all the same thing. That is normally the covenant theology interpretation of 1 John, which goes along with lordship, and that means that if you are not practicing the truth, and you aren't really saved. That's where that goes. So interpretive framework is important. Third point, light is frequently used as a metaphor for the essence of God. Light is his garment, that, that picture that God, light surrounds him, Psalm 104.2. His presence is indicated by light, the Shekinah glory in Exodus 13.21, Daniel 2.22, Nehemiah 9.12, Habakkuk 3.4, Psalm 4.6. We saw most of this last time. This is just review for those of you who weren't here. The essence of God. Ten attributes of the essence of God. Now, let's talk about the essence of God again, because I mentioned some things last time, and I want to repeat them so that you don't forget them. The essence of God. There are all kinds of characteristics stated of God in the Scripture. God is patient. God's long-suffering. God is kind. God is compassionate. God is uh, loving. God is all-knowing. There's all kinds of things attributed to God in the Scriptures. But we have to draw a distinction between characteristics and essential attributes. One of the reasons we have to do this is exemplified in understanding the distinction between love as an attribute of God and grace as an expression of the attribute of God. God is love. Love is a verb. Love is what's called a transitive verb. That means, grammatically speaking, that it takes a direct object. Now, I know this stresses some of you, when I get into grammar, because you don't have that foundation, but that's what a transit, any, any verb that takes an object where X happens to Y, then uh, that's called a transitive verb. So, just in the conventions of language, any language, Hebrew, Aramaic, Akkadian, Ugaritic, Sanskrit, Japanese, Chinese, Russian, a trans, love is a transitive verb. Love must take an object. You don't just love. You love Something. There is an object to love. So, if God is truly love, and 1 John 4 states that God is love, it's one of the few attributes where you have just a straight statement, God is something, God is holy, God is love. If God is love, then that means, for, for his, in terms of his attributes, that all of his attributes must be there throughout all of eternity and functioning. That means that it is independent. His attributes must be understood to be independent of a creaturely object or a creation object. So God is independent. Theologians use the word aseity. It means he is independent. He is not dependent on anything else or anyone else for the exercise of his attributes. Now, we can say that about a triune God, a God who exists in three persons in one essence, because God the Father loves God the Son with a perfect love. And that happens because in the Trinity they all share the same essence, and God the Father is perfect righteousness, God the Son is perfect righteousness, so God the Father can have a love for God the Son that is personal because 
the perfect righteousness of the Son is in complete agreement with the perfect righteousness of the Father. And the Son can have a reciprocal love for the Father because it finds a perfect object in the Father. The same is true of the love of God the Father and God the Son for God the Holy Spirit. So within the Trinity, we have the function and operation of divine personal love throughout all of eternity. Now, grace is a different thing. Because grace defined means unmerited favor or unearned blessing. The very concept of grace implies an object that is not deserving. Implies an object that is less than perfect. Implies an object that is not worthy of God's benevolence. So God cannot be, cannot be grace. The scriptures don't say God is gracious, but every time you see that, there is a, there is inherent within the passage the concept that, uh, that there's a creature there. That God is gracious toward man, towards fallen man, towards sinful man. God, grace does not function in eternity past because there is no creature that is undeserving. So that means that grace, therefore, cannot be viewed as an attribute of God because if it did, God would not be independent in eternity past. He would be lacking something. He would be lacking an object for his grace. And therefore, he would be dependent then upon the existence of an undeserving creature in order to function in his, as a core attribute. So that's the difference between attributes and essence and why grace is, an, is a function of the attribute of love, kindness, gentleness, patience are all functions. They're not primary attributes. They are functions of those attributes. And, by the way, the argument that I just presented is a classic argument for Trini- that has been expressed in Trinitarian monotheism since as early as the second century when there were charges made that, oh, Christians, you worship many gods because you have a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, so why aren't you polytheists? And as the early apologists, which means defenders, of Christianity in the Roman Empire in the second century developed these arguments demonstrating that in strict monotheism, like you have with Allah or in Unitarianism, God cannot be God and be loving at the same time. Because if he is loving, he would have to, if Allah were truly love, he would have to have an object for that love. And lacking an object for that love, he would have to create an object for that love, and therefore he would be dependent upon that object to be love. Therefore, he would not be God, because he would be dependent on creation, and by definition, he is not God. And you see that displayed in Islamic theology, because even though they may affirm that Allah is love, there is no love, there's no real grace, there's no real forgiveness in Islam at all. It is a very harsh religious system, and that is because there's ultimately no no God of love. So this is how we understand the difference between attributes and functions of attributes. So we boil these things down into ten core attributes, and everything else is an express that we say about God are expressions of individual or combin- individual attributes or combinations of attributes. God is sovereign, which means he is the ruler of the universe. He is the ultimate authority over everything. Nothing comes to pass without God's permission. He is righteousness. That is the absolute standard of perfection. And he is justice. Now, the two terms righteousness and justice both translate uh, from Hebrew and Greek singular words. For example, in Hebrew, the word tzedek, the word group from from the root tzedek, means righteousness or justice. Righteousness is the standard. Justice is the application. Depending on what you're talking about, you're either talking about righteousness or justice. English, we have the two different words in Greek and in 
uh, Hebrew, you have one root concept. In Greek, it is the root word decay, D-I-K-E and eta, long, almost a long A sound, from which we get dikaio, the verb, dikaiosune for, for righteousness, um, dikaios, justified. All of these come from that basic word group that can mean either righteousness or justice. And then God is love. He is agape. He is love. He is the essence of love. He defines love. Love is not some abstract principle that exists out there in human thought that God conforms to. You want to know what love is, you have to know the essence of God. He defines love. What he is, is love. You don't come along. See, this is the mistake that Satan made. Satan wants to make these things autonomous principles like, like philosophers do. And he says, how can a loving God cast his creatures into the lake of fire? He's defined love independently from God. He's created his own definition of love, and then he's come back and tried to impose that on God. And we run into that all the time in, in witnessing with, with folks who are unbelievers. They want to understand love a certain way. And then they want God to conform to their concept of love. And when God doesn't conform to their concept of love, and God's not loving, you've got a horrible God. Well, that's because the creature is dictating to the Creator, and we can't let Him get away with that. God is eternal. He has no ending, no beginning. God is not restricted by time. Time is a created object. God is uh, independent of time. God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows all the possible. He knows all the potential. By the way, this is being challenged today by a new development called the open view of God by certain evangelicals. And it denies the real omniscience of God that things can happen tomorrow that surprise God. Because if God really knew what was going to happen, this is the confusing thing here. They will argue that if God really knew what was going to happen tomorrow, then then what you couldn't decide to do otherwise. Therefore, you couldn't have volition. You couldn't have free will. And therefore, God, uh, uh, you're, you're just a robot. So it's taking the free will argument to its ultimate conclusion, and it's ultimately liberalism. And I know for sure, it's been I've been told this now by two or three different sources, that there's at least one professor at Dallas Seminary who holds to this position, and is teaching this, and there is possibly a second, and the head of the department is not lifting a finger to stop them, and neither is the ultimate administration. So this is a serious, serious shift in theology at, uh, at Dallas, and is a new, this is something I've just become aware of in, in the last year, and it's been developing for about five years among certain uh, uh, liberals. I mean, certain more more liberal evangelicals. God is omnipresent. He is not limited by space. He is present to every aspect of his creation, but it's more than that because that defines... See, if you say omnipresent means God's present to every aspect of his creation, you're defining God in terms of creation. We've got to have to define God in terms of who he is. He is independent of space and time. So he is not restricted by space. He is beyond space. He is omnipotent. He is able to do everything that he wants to do and is able to accomplish everything he wants to. It does not mean that God can do everything because God can't make a circle a square and he can't make, um, he can't commit sins. He can't commit evil. Omnipotence means that God can do whatever he needs to do to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. He is veracity. He is absolute truth. There is no error in him. And he is immutable, which means he never changes. Now, this is, and then its totality recognizes the essence of God. This is what it, Scripture means when it talks about light. It talks about the totality of his essence. Psalm 104.2, covering thyself with light as with a cloak. Stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He's covered with light. That's the totality of his being, his essence. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light. So he, he is, his essence is light and his essence then reveals. This is an important connection. The more I'm studying this, the more I'm seeing that 
that God being light isn't just a static property of his integrity, but it is revelatory. His integrity is reveals truth to us. And that's what we're going to see this connection as, as I develop. So watch this connection in the Scriptures. Habakkuk 3, 4, his radiance is like sunlight. Notice, radiance is something that flashes forth. It goes out. It's not just a static thing that just sits and simmers, but that it is, it's moving out. He has rays flashing from his hand. There's the hiding of his power. Psalm 4, 6, many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of thy countenance. That's the totality of his essence. Upon us, O Lord. Notice that it, the light emanates out towards man and illuminates man. So there's a movement from simply being his righteousness and justice to how his character then illuminates the thinking and the life of the creature. So ultimately, you can't separate who he is from the revelation of who he is. Psalm 44.3, For by their own sword they did not possess the land, their own arm did not save them, but thy right hand, thine arm, and the light of thy presence. Notice, his justice and righteousness it reveals methodology, revealed methodology. This is talking about a battle with uh, at the time of the Exodus, that his righteousness and justice revealed truth to man, and by means of truth, victory was accomplished. So there's this connection between his ultimate integrity and the revelation of truth, and that light function, light becomes the life of men, because by acting in response to his, his light, there is the giving of life. Psalm 89.15, How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, O Lord. They walk in the light of thy countenance. Walking, as we will see, is a metaphor for living a life. It's for a lifestyle. And, and so it's saying they, they live their lifestyle illuminated by thy essence. And the essence ultimately here is going to go to his integrity, which establishes the standards of, for living. Okay, light, all of that to emphasize light is used to illustrate the essence of God, but it goes beyond that. More specifically, point four, light in reference to its brightness and white purity is used as an illustration of the righteousness of God, his standard. Job 30, 26, when I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. Notice the uh, synonymous parallelism in the text. Light is parallel to good, darkness parallel to evil. Isaiah 5, 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. We have uh, emblematic parallelism there as we move from calling evil good and good evil to a further substitution of darkness for light and light for darkness. So light stands for good, divine good, and darkness for evil. Isaiah 58, 8, Then your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily bring forth and your righteousness will go before you. So light and righteousness are interlinked in Isaiah 58, 8. Micah 7, 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light. Notice, he executes justice for me by bringing me out to the light and then I see his righteousness. So there, the, the seeing here is related to the illumination of the light, which is his righteousness. So righteousness and justice illuminate Man, So it connects the revelatory feature to his integrity. Point five, light in its piercing quality. We just looked at light in terms of its purity relates to righteousness. Light in terms of its piercing quality is illuminating and revealing what is in the darkness. Uh, light in its piercing quality as illuminating and revealing what is in the darkness is a metaphor for the justice of God. Remember, the righteousness is the standard of God. Justice is the application of that standard. So as light pierces into 
the darkness of human environment. It is a revelation of the justice of God in human existence. Looks something like this. As we see in the diagram, we have the essence of God faded out into the background. And we have righteousness, justice, and love. Righteousness, justice, and love are the three crucial attributes interlinked in the integrity of God. Righteousness, as we have studied this many times, righteousness is the standard of God's integrity. Justice is the application of God's integrity. And love is the motivation of God's integrity. Righteousness, justice, and love express are expressed out towards man. (coughs) And illuminates and reveals to man, reveals truth to man in the darkness. You have righteousness, justice, love, and truth. I see as key things linked together. Truth is the revelation of God's character and His standards and His will and plan for mankind. Amos 5.18 says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. This indicates the sixth point, which somehow got dropped off the slideshow. Point number six, the absence of light or darkness, the absence of light, which is darkness, indicates the presence of divine judgment. The absence of light or darkness indicates the presence of divine judgment. It is the condemnation of God for the violation of His righteous standard. The presence of light will indicate blessing. The presence of darkness indicates judgment. Amos 5, 18 and 20. It, the, talking about the day of the Lord, which begins with the tribulation, it will be darkness and not light. And then Amos 5.20, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? So darkness is used to represent the condemnation of God on fallen man, rebellious mankind, and the rebellious nations in the tribulation. Point seven, the presence of light often refers to the veracity of God, His eternal truth, and its revelation. It refers to the veracity of God, His eternal truth, and its revelation. Psalm 43, 3. O send out thy light and thy truth. Notice how they're connected. Let them lead me. What leads us? His light, which is a revelation of His standards, His righteousness and justice, the revelation of His character, His integrity, and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling place. So light then is a revelation from the righteousness and justice and love of God that illuminates us to His righteousness, justice, and love. So point eight. Specifically then, light describes the facets or components of God's integrity. His righteousness... His justice and His love and truth. Four components. And they are specifically linked together in Psalm 89. Notice the text here. This is crucial to see how they link together. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness, the Hebrew word chesed, which brings in not only God's eternal personal love, but His faithful love, uh, bringing in faithfulness as a, as a function of immutability. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, O Lord, they walk in the light of thy countenance. What is the light of thy countenance that they walk in? That's what's explained in verse 14, is righteousness, justice, loving kindness, and truth. And blessed are the people who walk in the light of thy countenance. His essence specifically focused, just like a prism can focus light, or a magnifying glass can take sunlight and focus it down to one tight point. What the, uh, what the light of God does is focus us on four primary attributes. Not that the others aren't there, 
but that these are the ones that are most in focus. Righteousness and justice, love and truth. Point nine. The, the, his veracity, or the veracity, that should be the veracity or truth of God. The veracity or truth of God, then, is the attribute underlying his revelation. It's related to his righteousness and justice. That's why the, the Word of God is infallible and inerrant. It is because it comes from his absolute righteousness and justice, therefore it is perfect. It is going to be without error. The veracity of the truth of God, then, is the attribute underlying his revelation. So light is then used to represent the illumination of divine truth. Bible doctrine lights our thinking and our way of life. The psalmist said, it is in thy light we see light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is the word that is the expression of his truth and that expresses in the revelation of God, his standards and his justice, and how man can become aligned to the justice and righteousness of God by faith alone in Christ alone. See, there's a lot more to life than you ever thought, isn't there? All of this is just packed into that one metaphor. Point ten, or a couple of verses to indicate this. this is further connected between light and life. In him was life and the life, that is, the, it's the revelation of God, which is the light of men, that produces real life in man. We're just the walking dead until we're saved. We're spiritually dead. We're, we're, it's sort of like all of human history apart from Christ is the night of the living dead. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So the total essence of God gives us revelation, which is the basis for life. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Notice, reproofs for discipline and commandment are parallel here, and they are illuminatory. They are the way of, they, they illuminate, and they are the way of life. So the second clause, in each strophe is expansive. On the one hand, the commandment is light, the teaching is light, and then it goes to the next level, and these reproofs are the way of life. So it is on the basis of aligning to his revelation, his light, that we have real life. Point ten. In conclusion, then, Light represents the totality of the divine essence with special emphasis on his righteousness, justice, truth, add in love, and the illumination and guidance which Bible doctrine provides. Now, that's a mouthful. Light represents the totality of divine essence with special emphasis on his righteousness, justice, truth, and love, and that that essence then is the basis for his illumination and guidance of Bible doctrine toward us. Now, what that is going to mean is when it comes down to the next verse and it talks about how we are to walk in the light, that's more than just, if God is light, that's more than just being the static righteousness and justice of God, but the expression of that in the Word of God. We know about God's standards and how to align to his, with His justice at the cross and after salvation through confession of sin because of God's revelation. So walking in the light is not merely walking consistent with His integrity, His righteousness and justice, but it also but it includes walking consistently with Scripture. So if our belief or behavior is violate Scripture, then we're no longer walking in the light. We're no longer walking consistent with His righteousness and justice. And now the big question here is, how much sin does it take to violate the righteousness and justice of God? Now, I know of some people who say that, well, walking in the light, they, they restrict walking in the light to walking in the light of revelation. 
See, we have to understand that when, when John says God is light in verse 4, that's talking about his character. When he goes to verse 5, he's talking about the expression of that character in the Word. But you can't get the one without the other. They're inseparable. And I know of some who teach that you can walk... Walking in the light is just walking in obedience to His Word. So if you're ignorant of a sin, then you're not out of fellowship until God the Holy Spirit illuminates you to the sinfulness of that act. And then you have the option of confession or not. But you're not out of fellowship until you knowingly sin. So I raised the question one day. So there's a guy down in Harlem. He's a drug dealer. You've got two guys who are drug dealers, and they're out there, and a street evangelist comes up and gives them the gospel. And uh, as soon as the first guy hears, hears the gospel, he believes, but he's got to be somewhere. So before he learns anything about the Christian life, he's out of there. And he's back to his you know, live-in prostitute, and he's also a pimp. And so he's uh, do, dealing drugs, and he's a pimp, and he's living outside of marriage. So that's not a sin. He's not out of fellowship because he hasn't learned yet that those, those aren't, aren't sins. A little facetious, but he didn't like the point I was making. The point is that any little sin, known or unknown, anything that violates the righteous character of God and his revelation, whether we know it or not, violates the standard of God, and we're instantly out of fellowship. Takes us back to our study in Galatians 5.18, walk by means of the Spirit, and it's impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Something has to happen before we can sin once we're walking by the Spirit, and that's a volitional decision. Now, we may not be aware of it, fully conscious of it. It's simultaneous with our decision to sin, perhaps, but we make a decision to sin, and then we're, we're no longer walking by the Spirit, we're walking by the flesh. So at that instant, we're out of fellowship. Now, you didn't know it. You, you committed some sin. You didn't know it was a sin. But you're just as much out of fellowship. But because now that you're out of fellowship and you're walking by the sin nature, it's going to take about five, ten seconds for most of us before we're committing some known sin, bitterness, anger, resentment, uh, murder, stealing, whatever it might be, maligning. We're going to commit some known sin very soon after we're out of fellowship, even if what gets us out of fellowship is an unknown sin. So don't worry about that. It won't take you long before you realize you're out of fellowship. So this is the point. Verse 11, darkness then, in contrast to light, is used to represent the totality of that which is opposed to God, Satan, that which is opposed to God, which is Satan, his kingdom, His systems of thought, called the cosmic system, immorality, sin, and evil, which characterize Satan's plan and procedure. So darkness represents everything that is opposed to God. So there's either you're either walking in darkness or you're walking in light. You're not ever walking in some sort of of gray zone where you just have a a power outage or rolling blackouts, perhaps. You're either walking, it's absolute, and that's the point I'm making. These states of spirituality, you're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. You're either walking in darkness, walking in light. You're either walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. It's one or the other, it's not a little bit of both. Conclusion then, just to summarize it all up. First of all, light and darkness are mutually exclusive and incompatible. This means that there can be no compromise between the plan of God for the church-age believer and the strategy of Satan for ruling this world through the thought forms of the cosmic system. And that brings in the idea that it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. It's methodology as well as uh, ultimate belief. A right thing done in a wrong way is still wrong. Since these are mutually exclusive, point C... Since they are mutually exclusive, man is operating in either one or the other. You're either in darkness or in light. You're either aligned with God or you're aligned with Satan. D, this means that the believer inside the cosmic system is the enemy of God, according to James 4.4. He's called the enemy of the cross in Philippians 3.18 
and he will be called an ant, an, not the, an antichrist in 1 John 2.18. Because we're walking in darkness, we're antithetical to the righteousness and justice of God. Nevertheless, though the believer is eternally secure and cannot lose his salvation, but will lose rewards, destroy his spiritual advantage, he will, dis- he, <clears throat> excuse me, he will lose rewards, he will destroy his spiritual advantage, and he will experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ, which is in 1 John chapter 2. And then the sixth concluding remark, the believer is therefore in a continuous battle between darkness and light, sin nature versus the Holy Spirit, self-centered arrogance versus humility towards God, application of doctrine or rejection of doctrine. That's the battle. And when we sin, we are out of fellowship and there is recovery. But there are those who say other things. So we come to verse 6. Verse 6 is going, John is going to give us some real life hypotheticals. He is going to say that there are certain, we're going to make certain suppositions to see how this principle applies in relationship to fellowship. And so there are six hypothetical clauses starting in verse 6. And since that gets into some rather technical grammar to try to explain that, and we have to get into the whole concept of the doctrine of walking, I will wait and open up that can of worms next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have your word, that it does illuminate our thinking to absolute truth, that it is uh, the light of life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The issue is not works. The issue is not church attendance, church involvement, moral reformation, or any other human factor. The issue is... Faith alone. He who believes on him is not condemned, the scripture says. But he who believeth not is condemned already. So right now, right where you sit, you can make it the most important decision in your life that will impact eternity by simply accepting the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that the remainder of us will be challenged by what we have learned about your character about your word, about the illumination of your word, that we might make doctrine the number one priority in our life, as well as be uh, encouraged to be more attentive to realizing whether or not we are walking in the light or walking in darkness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.